KBU Community Radio holds an open meeting concerning the operations and programming of KBU in accordance with requirements of the Communications Act of 1934 and certification requirements of the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Information about KBU Community Radio's open meeting policy is available by calling the station at 503-231-8032. Meetings will be conducted at 20 Southeast 8th Avenue, Portland, Oregon, unless otherwise noted. The Program Advisory Committee meets the second Tuesday of each month at 6 p.m. Please call 503-231-8032 to verify if a meeting is being held. I may not get there with you, but I want you to know the night that we as a people will get to the promised land. I'm Shaheed Hamid, KBOO board member. Join the World Arts Foundation and KBOO Radio as we pay homage to the late Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. It's the 35th anniversary of Keep Alive the Dream, Monday, January the 20th from 11 to 6.30 p.m. at the Highland Christian Center. This year, we will be joined by international opera star Angela Brown and straight from America's Got Talent, Danielle Damon. That's Monday, January 20th from 11 to 6.30 p.m. at the Highland Christian Center at 7600 Northeast Gleason. Or listen live on KBOO Radio or view it on Open Signal Community Television. This is KBOO Portland. Stay tuned for the digital divide. This time for sure. Welcome to the Digital Divide. This is your host, Rabia Yaman, 
And uh, t- on today's episode, we're going we're going to be talking to two um, two ex- we're going to have two exciting phone calls. We have um, John Farmer on the phone, the marketing and communications manager with OMSI, our Oregon Museum of Science and Industry, and we're going to be talking about all the amazing um, events and um, exhibits that are going on uh, just right down by the river. So I'm very excited to talk about those, especially um, the current featured exhibit, Exquisite Creatures. And uh, on our second half, we're going to be talking with Cliff Berrickman. Um, Cliff is the uh, founder of the North American Bigfoot Center located in Boring, Oregon. And uh, it's kind of recently opened uh, towards the end of last year. And we'll be talking with him all everything Bigfoot. So very excited. And John Farmer, welcome to the program. Hi, thanks for having me on. I should say welcome back to the program. Um, yes, of course. So many things going on at OMSI. I think sometimes, you know, when you live in the city or you live near the city, you kind of start to take um, your museums maybe for granted or, you, you know, you're busy and you're not really keeping up. And I thought it would be good to remind all of our listeners of all the amazing things going on just r- literally, you know, f- right here in downtown Portland. So easy to get to. Ample parking as well. Of course. Um, let's start with, uh, I have a whole list of things I want to talk about. The current exhibit, I want to talk about um, the film retrospective that's coming up. Super exciting. Um some of the maker workshops that are going on. Um, there's uh, drag queen story time. I want to talk about everything. <laughs> I'm so excited about what's going on at OMSI. Um, so let's just start with the current featured exhibit. It's um, Christopher Marley's Exquisite Creatures. And um, what he does, I, I watched the video on the website, is he um, has all these animals, um, butterflies and various animals and insects donated to him. And he has, I guess, these... Um, preservation methods he's developed and he creates three-dimensional art from um, these previously living creatures. Tell us more about that. Yeah, well, you took the words right out of my mouth. I mean, uh, <laughs> well, I'm putting them back in. <laughs> yeah, Chris, so I think the, the larger thing to, to keep in mind the, is that Christopher Marley is really looking to inspire people uh, to reconnect with nature. Um, he has nothing against our digital screens and phones and technology and all of that, all that other stuff. He, he, he's a huge fan of that, but I think what he wants is he really wants to show that um, there is innate beauty and design and uh, in, in all living creatures. And he takes that to the next level by taking these beautiful uh, insects and lizards and fish and arranging them in ways that really just puts their natural beauty on display. Um, and you mentioned it earlier, he, so he does not hunt or kill for any of his uh, specimens. He has, I mean, he's been doing this for 20, over 20 years now. and so. What he has done is in that in those decades, he has developed uh, relationships and partnerships with museums and aquariums and zoos and all sorts of organizations across the world, and they send him uh, animals, vertebrates that die, uh, m- mostly in captivity. Um, and so he he jokes a little bit. He and I were talking. He was joking. He said. Half the time, I don't even know what my art, my next art project's going to be because I don't know what sort of animals are going to come my way. Um, and so he's a very, it, it really is, he, he's taking inspiration from the animals that come to him as opposed to him thinking, I need some sharks, therefore I will go get sharks and do something. He, he waits to see what comes his way. Um, and then the insects, he, uh, he does collect the insects, but he does so in a very... Uh, a responsible and uh, economically sustainable way. He's not out there um, grabbing thousands of butterflies at a time. In fact, he will catch butterflies 
and he will look at them and if it doesn't kind of meet what he's hoping for he'll he'll release them he has he he wants beautiful specimens and it's actually really kind of cool because one of the camps that he has been working with for years and years in uh, Indonesia uh, the people who own the two the two people who own this camp that he's been working with have actually been able to become this research hub and they've actually started operating tours for people for the public into this catch and release insect program and so now not only are are people being able to research and study insects but the public who otherwise wouldn't have been able to come and see some of these fascinating insects are having that opportunity so it's really a uh, it's really kind of a cool way that he's been able to work with some of these folks to really generate awareness and inspiration for biodiversity and beauty uh, in nature. They're amazing, and I would love um, I would love to know all his secrets of preservation because there's no obvious decay on on the art on the creatures. They're like beautifully preserved. And 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 they kind of look alive in their own way. Sure. Yeah, it's just yeah, amazing. He, I mean, he he's the first to say he's not a scientist, he's not a biologist, he's not a veterinarian. But over the years, he has worked with all of these folks, and he has developed. So every every specimen you see, every every vertebrate and insect is the entire animal. So it's not taxidermy. Um, he preserves the entire organism, uh, and he does so through, um, he, he's got, you know, freeze drying and there's chemicals involved. I mean, one of the sharks, he, he was, we were talking, one of the sharks that he has on in the, um, one of his art pieces took over a year to prepare to be dried and preserved properly. And then all of his specimens are in uh, airtight containers. So the, the presentation cases that his artwork is in is airtight, it's hermetically sealed. Wow. So it's, it is a process for sure. Yeah, it's fascinating. It's so beautiful. And um, how, how, how are they displayed in the exhibit that's going on right now? Well, so it's, it's kind of like an art gallery feel where you come in and in previous exhibits, we sometimes guide visitors through kind of a general narrative or storyline, maybe a kind of a, like when we had the discovery of King Tut, it was a very guided tour uh, in terms of the story of the story of it. Mm -hmm. This is much more open. Uh, so you're able to kind of just go in and just absorb the artwork. It's, you know, mounted on the walls. And... Um, yeah, and it's it's fascinating. He organizes pieces by color. Sometimes it's by habitat. Uh, sometimes it's standalone. So a lot of it has to do. It's just it's kind of his artistic uh, representation of these animals. People who are curious to you know kind of get a sense of it. There's a great video, uh, a short, a really short video on your website at theomzi.edu. Uh, that kind of sh gives you a little idea of what the exhibit looks like and 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 what's going on with it. It's just phenomenal. Yeah, and I will add that um, it sounds you know it's it's crazy to think, but there's only about a month left of this exhibit. So the exhibit closes February 17th, and we have received more positive feedback. People who have gone and been completely blown away. Uh, than I've seen in a while. And so if people are thinking of coming, uh, come now <laughs> so you can beat the crowds uh, because as with a lot of these really popular exhibits, the closer you get to closing, uh, the more the busier it can get. So right. if you're thinking of coming, now's the time. That's right. Don't don't wait. Get, I actually know someone that is going um, tomorrow to see it. So with, oh, great. With their family. So that's great. exciting. Um, uh, coming up, uh, let's see, January, well, it's going on before then, so throughout January, or starting when, on the 25th, to correct the date for me, the, the film retrospective, um, you're going to be showing multiple films, 
um, my neighbor Totoro, Spirited Away, Kiki's Delivery Service. Um, yeah. All these amazing, this film retrospective. Tell us a little bit about that. So this is our fifth year hosting a Studio Ghibli film retrospective. Um, it started actually yesterday, so January 9th, and it runs through January 26th. Um, and all that information is right there on our website. But if this is, um, like I said, this is our fifth year. And, you know, a lot of our stuff, we, we generally try and have that scientific tie. I would say Studio Ghibli is is not as scientific, but there are a lot of connections to what we do and care about here. For one, um, it is beautiful animation. So that there is art and animation involved and storytelling in all of these films. And we actually uh, host many digital animation summer camps for kids. So one of the things, you know, aside from, you know, getting out and doing survival and running around in the woods and having fun that way, we also teach kids how they could make a movie, how they could do digital animation, and some of the foundational principles there. So there's that connection for us. Um, and I think also um, Studio Ghibli, uh, there's a lot of uh, really resonant content in the films, specifically around the environment, uh, the preservation and conservation of the world we live in. So that also resonates for us as well. I. I, I only know about all of those movies from my own granddaughter, who is a huge fan of animation and uh, Studio Ghibli. So uh, when I saw the, the retrospective, I just thought, oh, this is delightful. Yeah. Um, maker workshop, super exciting. Um, soap making, fermentation. Tell us about those workshops. Those are cool. People yeah. can go in, they can learn how to make soap and take it home with them. Absolutely. So it's, as with a lot of things that we do here, it is not just coming in and making soap. Uh, we have top-notch educators, actual, you know, actual scientists uh, in a <laughs> sense. And they not don't just help you make soap, they teach you what's going on. So you're making soap, you're choosing all the ingredients, it's a pretty small uh, workshop. I think it's limited to about about 20 people, maybe mm -hmm. 18 to 20 people. So it's very uh, it, it's pretty intimate environment, which really allows for some really fun engagement with our educators, who are just the most personable, lovely, wonderful people. Uh, and they, I mean, you want to see someone get excited about making soap? It's come to Amzi, uh, and our folks will do that. And so. This is a great opportunity. This is like a, a perfect, um, you know, caregiver child uh, day date. You know, maybe you need to get out and spend some quality time with your child. This is the perfect time. Maybe it's your, uh, maybe this is a romantic relationship and this is your second or third date out. This is another amazing opportunity for something like that. Um, and of course you get to bring home all this wonderful uh, soap that we use. Yeah, it's really fun. and. Um, and that is something that you know a, a couple members of the family can participate in together. So yep. um, you know, not only is Omzi, you know, you can go there and learn things about science, but um, there's so many hands-on learning exper experiential learning. I guess it's super yeah. exciting. That's, a, that's um, the core of what we do. Um, you can, I mean, you can go on the internet and you can read about it all you want. But until you get your hands dirty, uh, right. actually building something or putting something together or mixing something, um, it uh, it becomes that much more real. And a lot of people um, learning their learning style is by doing. That is a very uh, the majority of people learn by doing. So we really try to encourage that. I I agree with you. I think so. You know, you can read a book about driving a car, but it's nothing like really driving a car <laughs> exactly um oh yeah and a miso making workshop i'm i always wondered how do you make miso that's yeah that's amazing we do we have soap um miso we do uh bitters for mixing drinks um there's cheese making um and during the holidays 
we have a special gingerbread uh, workshop where we build a gingerbread house and then see and then put it on our earthquake shake tables to see if it <laughs> uh, stand up to an earthquake. That's adorable. Um, also, story time uh, with um, Carla Rossi, Drag Queen Story Time, where you can take your kids down and they can um, have a story time experience. Yeah. So. This is part of what we are calling winter weekends programming. So, um, so Science Playground is the space upstairs for kids zero to six. Uh, we have a stellar team up there who are experts at educating young children. And that space is being refurbished. It's going to be beautiful and amazing in, a couple, in a, about two months or so. But in the meantime, we wanted to, we, there's a temporary space uh, for families with young kids, but we also wanted to add even more fun programming. So during select weekends uh, in January and February and one or two in March, uh, the, the events are listed on our Facebook and our uh, website, we're opening up the auditorium with a lot of big hands-on learning experiences. So we have these big blue blocks and rigamajig, which is basically Legos on steroids. We have huge <laughs> Duplo blocks. Um, and Carla Rossi is one of many performers. We're bringing in about five performers. So we have a bunch of musical groups who specialize in uh, engaging and interacting with young kids. And it's always educational and fun. And so Carla Rossi is the first of about five or six special guests that we're going to be having during the winter weekends. That is so cool. Um, also coming up on January 25th and 26th, you're having uh, or hosting a reptile and amphibian show? Oh yeah. I mean it's, we, we host we have the reptile and amphibian show. We have an agate and mineral show. We have all these really cool things um, that are for, that just, you just wouldn't normally get, right? You, you don't, you I mean, you can go to the zoo and see a snake or, uh, you know, a lizard or whatever. But again, going back to that hands-on thing here at OMSI, we really want to offer up that opportunity for kids and their, and their caregivers to come in and really have that chance to just experience uh, these creatures. And so that's what we'll be doing. It'll be fun. I'm, I'm going to quote your website that says, pet the freakish, cold-blooded, slithery things all you want. Yep. It's <laughs> good. And, you know, and, and if you want to pet more, we've got the Life Lab where we have walking sticks and all sorts of other stuff that you can really uh, interact with as well. That's cool. And then the last thing, um, on January 29th, OMSI After Dark, cards and consoles tell us about that yeah so this is going to be focused on games board games video games but not in the sense of like we're hosting you know a halo tournament we're bringing in people who make their own games maybe teach people how to program a game there's a lot of science demonstrations that'll be revolved around games and playing and things like that and so this is uh this is the first omsi after dark in this year and so it'll be a lot of fun. Uh, we have all sorts of, I mean, it's, it's kind of, if, if you've never been to an OMSI after dark, imagine coming to OMSI with no children and you can take your beer with you wherever you want. I mean, that's kind of, <laughs> <laughs> kind of how we do it. That <laughs> sounds like so much fun. Um, well, I want to encourage everyone to get um, down to OMSI uh, to see exquisite creatures. Of course, OMSI is located at 1945 Southeast Water Avenue. So it's just um, right kind of next to the river in a way. Uh, well, it's right next to the river. They can even uh, do the um, uh, the submarine tour, which is super fun. Oh, yeah. Uh, and take the Max. If you want to take the Max, there's an OMSI stop. We're right there at oh, the OMSI right. stop. That's right. Omsi so super easy to get to. Um, make sure don't miss the um, Exquisite Creatures exhibit running for another month. And John Farmer, thank you so much for um, being on the program today. Yeah, thanks for having me. Have a great day. Thank you so much. All right. Uh, coming up, we're going to take a little musical interlude. Um, but after that, we will be talking with Cliff Berrigman 
um, founder of the North American Bigfoot Center in Boring, Oregon. Thank you. 
And welcome back to The Digital Divide on KBOO Portland. This is your host, Rabia Yaman, and uh, I am so delighted to um, be talking with Cliff Berrickman. I hope I'm saying your name right, Cliff. Um, <laughs> today on uh, The Digital Divide, the founder of the North American Bigfoot Center in Boring, Oregon. Welcome to the program, Cliff. Hi, thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. <laughs> You're so welcome. Um, I did not know that Estacada was one of the hotbeds of Bigfoot activity in our area. Well, yeah, there's actually there's a lot of hotbeds. Uh, Estacada is on a lot of Bigfooters' radars because of the documentation that's come out of it. Um, sightings have gone on and been written down, and told, the stories have been told uh, in books and whatnot since the 60s. And, you know, there's Sasquatches in a lot of places, but um, word gets out when people document um, the sightings and the evidence. And uh, Estacada has a lot of uh, good documentation, which is why it's on the radar like that. How do we know? Uh, no, I ha- I'm going to admit, that I, I'm not a disbeliever, but I'm, I am a skeptic, right? So I'm like... You should be. I, I you am. Be I am a skeptic. Yeah. So, like, how do we know when someone, you know, reports a sighting and they say that they saw a Bigfoot, that they weren't drunk and saw a bear? Well, you know, there's the, you, first of all, you, you can't ever really know. Um, but what you can do is you can look for patterns and interesting peculiarities, I guess, in the body of evidence. Because it's not like one person says they saw a Sasquatch and therefore the, the, the thing is real, the, you know, the, the species is real. It's that tens of thousands of people have said they've seen Sasquatches and when you look at the data and do like statistical analyses and things like that uh, on the data itself, patterns start developing and interesting patterns um, that would not be true unless they were in fact a real biological thing. You know, um, for example, you go back to uh, historical sighting reports from the 1800s, and you can find behaviors in those reports, like rock throwing, tree shaking and breaking, screams, uh, even whistling, that you can find, uh, well, that those behaviors weren't even noted in ape behaviors until the pioneering work of Jane Goodall and Diane Fossey in the 1960s. So um, one of the ways you can uh, weigh evidence on how valid it might be is how well it predicts future discoveries in the field. And sure enough, that is the case with Sasquatch uh, um, evidence. And, what, and right now I'm specifically talking about the historical evidence and old newspaper reports that predicted future behaviors that were unknown at the time in apes. Fascinating. Um, I guess I want to back up. I just really jumped right in with that. Um, but uh, you and your wife, Melissa, um, you live in Clackamas County, as do I. We're actually kind of neighbors. Um, not... <laughs> Not super close, not next door neighbors, but you know, in the same. Well, Clackamas is a big place. It's a big place. That's right. (laughs) Um, And there are a few other museums uh, related to. uh, So I guess Bigfoot fall under the category of cryptozoology. Uh, Just explain what that term means for our listeners. Yeah, yeah. Cryptozoology is a term that was coined back in the late 50s, if I remember correctly, by a guy named Ivan Sanderson. Um, It's from the Greek. Crypto means hidden, um, and zoology is obviously the study of animals. So Mm -hmm. it's kind of the study of hidden animals, or in other words, animals that have not yet been discovered or recently were discovered. Um, Things like the Komodo dragon. uh, I think, if I remember right, it was discovered in the 20s at some point, 1920s. The mountain gorilla, the largest uh, ape known at this point, or recognized, I should say, uh, discovered, I think it was 1901 or 1902. I mean, we didn't know about gorillas at all until about 1850. Mm-hmm. Um, and even as recently as 2017, a new species of orangutan was discovered. And all of these would fall under cryptozoology. So when we talk about another unknown species or an unrecognized species like Sasquatch, that's kind of the umbrella term for looking into that sort of thing, whether it's a, you know, a Sasquatch or an unknown lizard on Sumatra or something like that. It's all cryptozoology. That's reasonable. Um, what personal you know, direct encounters like, have you had with, with Bigfoot? Oh, I've had numerous. Uh, keep in mind, I've been uh, doing field work for Sasquatches um, for over 25 years now. Um, and the last 10 of those years, I was on Animal Planet's uh, television show, Finding Bigfoot. Mm-hmm. So um, I've had the opportunity to travel not only the country. I've been to 45 or 46 states 
specifically looking for Sasquatches, but I've been to five continents looking for other relic hominoids, of, no matter what they call them, uh, the Ye Ren in China, for example, or the Yaoi or Brown Jacks down in Australia, um, the Tari in Vietnam, um, Rang Pendex in Sumatra, the list goes on and on. And those are all um, creatures that are similar or the same as Sasquatch? Well, we don't know if they're the same as Sasquatch because we really don't know what Sasquatches are yet. Um, and certainly some of those are not Sasquatches. Uh, the Orang Pendek, for example. Orang Pendek seems to be a species of small, largely bipedal humanoid or hominid. Well, maybe not hominid, hominoid, I should say, which is a fancy term for human-shaped thing. And um, they live on the island of Sumatra, but they're small, um, just like a... Um, something like uh, the Ibugogo, which is another thing that's reported from the island of Flores down in um, Indonesia, these small, hairy, man-shaped things that walk on two legs. Um, so they seem to be, there seem to be a number of different species of these things um, uh, spread throughout the world. Now, we don't know if any of them are, or how closely any of them are related to Sasquatches, because we don't even really know what Sasquatches are at this point. Well, so have you had a, a direct encounter yourself where you... Oh, sure. Yeah, oh, yeah, yeah. Tell, sure. tell I, us about one, one of them. Well, I saw one in 2011. I saw a Sasquatch in 2011 through a thermal imager, or at least I sure think it was a Sasquatch. Where um, was that? You know, I, I, it was in uh, North Carolina in a place called Uwari National Forest. We were out there doing an expedition, um, and at the time there was a human-shaped figure standing on the opposing hillside um, at two o'clock in the morning, we were about two mile and a half, two miles off trail. We we didn't take a trail to get there. We, we went across the brush, and um, whatever it was, and I saw it through a thermal imager. I should say that as well, which is what leaves that small element of doubt in my mind that maybe it wasn't one. Mm -hmm. But whatever it was, it sure walked weird. It didn't walk like a person at all. Mm -hmm. It walked very strangely. Um, the the gait, in other words, and whatever it was. Uh, was navigating a wooded hillside at 2 o'clock in the morning without a light. And also, whatever it was, um, quickly outpaced us. We tried to get close to it, and we had no chance whatsoever. Uh, I never saw it again. I, I watched it for about 8 or 10 seconds, probably, and then it disappeared into the brush and never saw it again. And then about 45 minutes later, something started yelling at us from that opposing hillside. Argh! Like that sort of thing. Oh my gosh. So I'm inclined to think that it was a Sasquatch um, based on the circumstances. But other than that, I've been screamed at from very close range. I've had rocks thrown at me in the middle of the night in the way off trail in the dark. Um, I've tracked them. I've smelled them. I've spoken to literally thousands of people who have claimed to have seen these things. Um, there's really no doubt anymore based on not only what I've personally experienced, but also the evidence that other scientists and whatnot have laid out that these is, this is, in fact, a real species of animal. Well, I know at the, at the museum in the front, um, there are foot castings that are not like any other animal that I've seen. Well, actually, yeah. Um, that we There are about three or 350 or so foot, prac foot castings on record so far. And uh, the interesting thing about it is that they only superficially resemble human footprints. It, it turns out that um, to carry a mass the size of a Sasquatch, you have to redesign the foot structure, the bone structure, and through this body of evidence, people like Dr. Jeff Meldrum from Idaho State University, who's an expert in primate foot anatomy, has reconstructed the, the bone structure, I guess, of the underlying bones of the foot based on the footprints using um, you know markers that he can see because he has that level of expertise. Turns out that the, um, the foot structure, like the metatarsals, for example, have been shortened. The heel has been lengthened. And those are exactly the sort of redesigns of a foot, like a human foot, that you would have to, do, have to make on a foot like theirs to carry a mass of their size. And also, interestingly, humans have an arch, uh, a longitudinal arch, it's called. Sasquatches do not. They've retained flexibility in the mid part of their foot. And this is all based on evidence, of course, based on the footprint cast evidence. But um, humans and Neanderthals, and to some degree the Heidelbergensis species, they were the only ones um, in, our, in our ancestry, in the human ancestors, that have an arch. All the other species, uh, um, Australopithecines, uh, Homo habilis, etc., they've all also retained flexibility in the mid part of their foot. So it's interesting to see the congruence between the Sasquatch evidence and other extinct hominin footprints. It's fascinating. And, and, 
uh, we can see the evidence of the flexibility of the mid part of the Sasquatch foot dating all the way back to the 1950s, but yet that was only um, publicly published in a paper in uh, 2001, I believe. So Amazing. Now, I was watching a video last night, and um, I don't know if uh, this person used to work with um, a person named Bobo. Is that the right name? Bobo is a very good friend of mine. He was one of the co-hosts on Finding Bigfoot, and right. Bobo and I do a podcast now together on a weekly basis. That's right. That's right. I want to talk about your podcast before we're done, but um, what I really want to talk about, um, of course, being semi-skeptical, um, is DNA. Now, um, on an interview that I saw um, Bobo giving with, um, I don't know, it was a talk show of some kind, uh, he claimed that um, you know, I, and I, I, I actually listened to another interview. Um, I think that you were doing maybe with a, a woman who's, who said yes. There, um, someone had shot a, um, shot a Sasquatch and had recovered like part of the beast. And yeah, that turned out to be not a, so true. Not so true. Okay, so is there no DNA sample at all of any Sasquatch anywhere? No, unfortunately, at this point, um, there's been a couple of false leads um, and people saying that they had things and, you know, people looking at like, oh, it seems to be true. And then later on down the line, it didn't end up being true, which is why I encourage skepticism. I think uh, perhaps Bobo and I, even myself, we probably jumped the gun a little bit on that one because we had good sources, but even good sources can be incorrect sometimes. At this point, there is no DNA because we don't have a good piece of the body to test, essentially. We have a few hair samples that um, show primate characteristics, but the only place in the hair that you can get DNA material is the medulla, which is the center shaft. It's kind of like the pencil lead inside of a pencil. Mm -hmm. And it turns out that Sasquatch hair um, lacks or has a fragmentary medulla. So the odds are stacked against us to begin with. And by the way, that's not unheard of. Uh, Red-haired human beings also have that same feature. So it's not exactly unknown in the, um, the primate data set. But um, it, it, it's excruciatingly difficult to get any DNA material out of hair, and then because you can only get it from the medulla. Not from and the FBI. They don't seem to have well, yeah, well, the follicle has um, has uh, DNA material in it, and sometimes that's where they get it. And um, even if you do get DNA material out of the hair, it's only mitochondrial DNA as well. It's kind of a peculiarity of hair. So, so, but there is interesting technology called eDNA that is now being employed um, for Sasquatches, um, where you can test the environment in which an animal lives and get all the DNA of all the animals that live there. So we're hoping to um, use that technology very soon. Oh, that sounds expensive. Um, how do yes, they? Yes, it is actually. <laughs> I know it must be. How how would they do that? How would they? Like you get it, like samples out of the air, things that are just kind of floating, microscopic particles in the air. Is that what that means? Well, not 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 out of the air. There's a couple different ways that we've been playing with trying to do this. Um, one of the ways is like catch, have a mosquito trap and making a you know a milkshake out of all the mosquitoes that you trap, okay. and then see what they've been feeding on. Um, but really, the, probably the most promising avenue is uh, we tried this past year because we found these very large ground nests up in the Olympic Peninsula. There's a great research group up there called the Olympic Project, um, and they have they discovered these ground nests. Actually, a logger, a guy who owns a logging company, found them and pointed the Bigfoot guys to it. And these ground nests strongly resemble gorilla nests. Um, oh, and the biologists that have been brought out to examine them all say, well, this isn't bear behavior, or if it is bear behavior, it's unknown bear behavior. So Dr. Meldrum from Idaho State University took core samples of a number of those uh, nests and did a, a fundraiser, like a Kickstarter sort of thing, and raised enough money to test a small number of the samples. And we got some interesting results, but nothing definitive, unfortunately, some fragmentary DNA that resembled humans. Um, but more work needs to be done with fresher nests. These were several years old by the time they tested it. So we're waiting for the next hot lead to come in so we can do something like that. Now, how do you predict, like I've heard, you know, numbers like there's 1,100, there's uh, estimated 1,200. How do you estimate how many Sasquatch there might be roaming around? Well, I'm, I'm certainly no expert in the ecology. You'd probably have to ask an ecologist about that. I mean, one of my strengths is that I know what I don't know, but luckily <laughs> I know people who know a lot more than I do, so I can go. I, I basically work with a team of people, not really an organized team, but I've got people in high places, you know. Um, but the general consensus from people who know far more than me 
um, say that there's probably about 100 bears or so for every one Bigfoot. So using those numbers, you can guesstimate maybe about 350 Bigfoots in Oregon, which sounds like a lot, but that implies, you know, less than 10 deaths a decade. So I don't know. There's not very many of these things around. Is there um, any spe- any other speculation about how long they might live or... Oh, yeah, there is actually, because it turns out all the great apes, including humans, because that's our biological family, you know. So all great apes live to be about, you know, 40, 50 years old until something like an accident or a dental death gets them. Mm -hmm. Uh, There's also a rule in biology that states uh, that larger animals tend to live a little bit longer, you know, like uh, bigger tortoises live longer than the small ones, for example, or whales live longer than dolphins. Um, And so Sasquatches might actually reach 50 or 60 years old. We don't really know, of course. Well, you know, that's speculation on a huge degree. But um, the very small number of repeat uh, observations of the same animals indicate at least 40 or more years. Tell tell us about the museum. Oh, the museum is located on Highway 26 at the 212 exit, at the boring exit, you know, next to the pizza place. It's just just right off the freeway. There's um, a, a gas station. There's... Uh, right, like you said, a pizza sports place, and then you're kind of right next to it. It's really easy to get to, and there's loads of parking. Now, um, I w- I didn't have time. I stopped by yesterday, um, and I didn't have to, I didn't have a uh, time to uh, go back into the museum. Tell us what um, people see when they go back there. Very mysterious. Well, uh, the first thing they see is one of the most realistic depictions of a Sasquatch that's ever been sculpted, in my opinion. Obviously, like, I need to have a Bigfoot model or a, you know, a, I don't know what to call it, I guess, a um, mannequin. I don't know what to call it, but a life-size Sasquatch, basically. You go around the corner, and um, a guy named Bo Bruns out in Ohio, who works for a professional creature maker uh, workshop, they make animatronics for haunts and everything, he sculpted this thing, and it is by far the most realistic Sasquatch I've ever seen um, that's not really a Sasquatch. Uh, In fact, I've had a number of very close um, witnesses. People have seen Sasquatches from 30, 40, 50 feet away. Whenever I get one of those, I always bring them to the back and point to our guy. We named him Murphy and say, well, tell us the difference between what you saw and what what Murphy is. And they nitpick a little. You know, the skin is a different color. The hair was longer here or there. But they all say it's very, very close. That's the first thing that you see when you come in the back display hall. Why can't these people take photos of their... When they see well, that's that. another thing. If you would have gone in the back, you would have seen the number of photographs of Sasquatches that okay. have been yeah, they've been analyzed on a variety of levels. Um, I, we have a small movie theater, and I run a, an eight-minute documentary back there about uh, my analysis of a photograph of a Sasquatch taken down at Ripplebrook, down on the Clackamas River. We have a foot a piece of footage from Roseburg that was taken on May third, two thousand nineteen. Okay. Um, we have o- over nine minutes of footage of a Sasquatch down there. I'm coming back. We have permission from the from the Freeman fa- uh, family to show the Paul Freeman footage. Um, there's dozens of footprint casts. There's handprint casts. There's other parts of the body, like we have a big old butt print, which is kind of funny and cool. Um, there's, and we have a whole native display. I commissioned a Native American filmmaker to make uh, he's a macaw gentleman from up in Washington. He's made us a short documentary on the macaw perspective on Sasquatches. Yeah, there's a lot of stuff to keep your, uh, you know, a lot of eye candy back there, shall we say. <laughs> eye candy. That, that's amazing. Um, what, what are your bigger plans? I mean, you have been, you have been on this sus. Like the like Sasquatch is kind of your holy grail. You've been looking everywhere, like you said, you've been in like forty nine states. You're I mean, your life is devoted to this. Um what what's your grander like vision? You you've recently opened the museum, which is so exciting, and you're you're doing the podcast and you're still involved in research. What, like where do you see um, yourself and the museum and your research like five years from now? Well, you know, I think to look at my overarching goals and thoughts on the matter, you have to understand that I, I was a professional educator. I taught elementary school, 10-year-olds, fifth graders, um, for 14 years before I ended up on Animal Planet's Finding Bigfoot. So I, I view what I'm doing now as continuing my job as an educator. But instead of teaching all the subjects like a fifth grade teacher does, I'm teaching one, which is Sasquatch. Um, because these things are in fact real. 
And eventually, one day, somebody will bring in a dead one, whether it's somebody who shoots one like a hunter or some truck driver runs one over on the road or something. A dead one will come in, and which is what proof will look like, by the way. There's no other way to prove it, not even DNA. But a dead one will come in, and I'm not going to be that guy. I'm not, I'm not out there to try to shoot one of these things. I'm out there to trying to educate the public. Because when you look at all the atrocities that humankind has uh, done over the you know, thousands of years we've been around, it's, it's always born out of ignorance. So my thought is maybe I can do some education here. Maybe I can teach people a little bit that Sasquatches are not monsters. They're not necessarily something to be afraid of, although they should be respected, you know, like bears, for example. Um, they are, they're Bigfoots and they're real and they're actually here. If I can do my job educating, maybe once they are academically um, uh, recognized, maybe I can do some good for them. You know, that's kind of my thought. I'm trying to educate the public on a subject that I love dearly, and I know beyond all measure of doubt that these things are in fact real. Maybe I can do some good for them and have some fun doing it while I'm, you know, out here doing Bigfoot stuff. Well, yeah, the the museum and this and the little shop in front are really fun and filled with just fascinating um, displays. And information, and I want to get back in that museum and see those pictures now, if I can be. Oh yeah, yeah. There's a lot of stuff to look at, and you know, we, we've only really had the display halls open since October. You're look, you when you're here, you're looking at version 1.0. We're hopefully going to be around for years and years and years, and grow and develop and change and just make it cooler and cooler and cooler all the time. Yeah, that's very exciting. Now, do you have any? Um, expeditions for yourself going out well I think when I was there yesterday you mentioned that there had been a sighting on Saturday and you went out to investigate it tell us about that that's just last Saturday yeah 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 cause, you know because after traveling the, the country and the world looking for Bigfoot stuff and don't get me wrong I'd love to know about Bigfoot in Florida but I'm really more interested in the ones here because I live here I want to know about the habits of these animals um, so and to that to that end I put my feelers out wherever possible and on this past Saturday, a Forest Service worker actually observed one of these animals um, north of White Salmon. So I got the, I got word on Monday morning, um, and I called um, Melissa, my wife, and I wasn't work, she wasn't working on Monday, so she came in and covered for me. And I was out at the site of her um, sighting on Monday and Tuesday, scouring the area for sign and footprints. And you know, with all the rain and whatnot that came down Saturday and Sunday there wasn't really anything there to look at. I found some interesting, you know, possibilities, but nothing real solid. But, you know, that's what I love to do. I love it when somebody sees one of these things and reports it to me, and I can get out there within 24 or 48 hours to try to collect even more evidence showing that they are, in fact, here and showing that the evidence is internally congruent with one another. And tell us what the Forest Service um, employee reported. Well, basically, she uh, was out driving on these roads north of White Salmon, and she came around this corner out, you know, pretty far out there, and there was a long straightaway. And at first, uh, the straightaway is about maybe a third of a mile or a half a mile. It was getting dark. It was about 5 or 5.30, so it was pretty dark. So the road that she was on kind of looked like a tunnel, you know, but at the, the, like most tunnels, there's a light at the end of the tunnel. And she saw a silhouette of what she initially thought was a bear. Mm -hmm. And she thought to herself, oh, my God, that's the biggest bear I've ever seen. That thing must weigh 600 or more pounds. You know, if you know bears, that's a really, really big black bear. And then uh, she got a little bit closer to it, perhaps 300 feet away, and the thing stood up on two legs she said it was massive but and she immediately yelled oh my god it's a man but the thing is this man that she's looking at the silhouette of this so-called man this man took up the majority of the, the left-hand lane and then it just turned made two steps off into the brush and she never saw the thing again and she's going by just and like most witnesses she didn't go oh my god i saw a bigfoot she's going by and she's processing and right. she's afraid to look in the woods and by the time she gets to the end of the road, she goes, that was no man. Oh, my God. And, you know, she works at a Forest Service office. I mean, I'm not going to say which one or what her name is. It's nobody's business. She has to worry about her job after all. Right. But she's heard things come in the office over the years. So now she's going, well, i got to start paying more attention when somebody says something in the office now. Oh, interesting. Well, um, Cliff, thank you so much for um, joining us today. And I really want to encourage... Uh, Give our listeners the address 
Um, it's it's right off Highway 26. So if you take 26, oh, you know what? I'm not going to say the address because the address doesn't work, and that's the problem. You know, oh. like, uh, our address is a little wonky. But I will say this: um, we are right on the corner of Highway 212 and Highway 26, next to Nuts on Sports Pizza and Chester's Pub. That's right. Um, if you if you use Google Maps, don't look up the number. The number puts you about a mile and a half down the road. But you can look up North American Bigfoot Center, and it'll bring you right here. Um, it, it is really easy to find. You can just see it right from right from the road. Um, yeah. And uh, it's it's fun. Um, bring your kids. Now, are you doing? Do you have like any kind of scheduled weekly um, talks that you're giving at this point, where people could be like, "Let's bring the kids," and or go? When, no, you, when do you like do the movies? How do you? When do you do the movies? When I when do I do the movies? In the in the museum, you have the little films oh, that you run. Well, no, no. Well, the little films we have like eight minute documentaries that loop all day long. Oh, okay. So there's no so, schedule for those. Yeah. So people can just walk in and see those. Those are running. Yes. Very good. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, all day long. Right. It's it's fun. Go out there, go to the museum, check it out, and then just wander off into the woods looking for Sasquatch. But but of course, be safe. Use your brain about it. <laughs> always always do that. Always be safe and use your brain. Cliff, thanks so much. Um, I'm going to be stopping back in to say hello to you soon since we're kind of in the same neighborhood there. And yes, uh, get in the back of the museum. And, and good luck to all of that. And if you do come in contact, you get a hold of me right away because I want to hear about it. <laughs> Okay, very good. Well, you can always follow us on social media and stuff and find out what we've been up to and all the new sightings and stuff, too. Excellent. Okay, thank you so much, Cliff. Thank you. Bye-bye. And I want to thank all of our listeners for tuning in today. Um, As you can see, there's just a a boatload of things going on in town and out in uh, just what? Like, that's maybe 30 minutes out of town east. you could take Pal all the way out there. Um, easy to find and fun. And then you can decide for yourself what's going on. Um, anyway, be sure and tune in every second Friday of the month at 11 a.m. for the Digital Divide on KBOO Portland. <laughs> FM, Hood River and the Gorge at 91.9 FM, Philomath and Corvallis at 104.3 FM, and streaming on the web at kboo.fm. I hate a song that makes you think that you're not any good. I hate a song that makes you think you're just born to lose, bound to lose, no good to nobody, no good for nothing. Because you're either too old or too young or too fat or too thin or too ugly or too this or too that. Songs that run you down or songs that poke fun at you on account of your bad luck or your hard traveling. 
I am out to fight those kind of songs to my very last breath of air and my last drop of blood. I'm out to sing songs that'll prove to you that this is your world and that if it's hit you pretty hard and knocked you down for a dozen loops, no matter how hard it's run you down and rolled over you, no matter what color, what size you are, how you're built, I am out to sing the songs that'll make you take pride in yourself. Radio holds open meetings concerning the operations and programming 